This message was recorded at the Billy Graham Training Center at The Cove in Asheville, North Carolina. Through the ministry of The Cove, we're training people in God's Word to win others to Christ. It's our goal to develop Christians who experience God through knowing Him better, knowing His Word, building godly relationships, and helping others know Him. We trust that this message will strengthen your walk with God and help you experience Him right where you are. Thought I'd start start off with the questions. I was going to play a couple songs. Um, is there a website where you post your travel schedule and teaching schedule? Uh, yeah, MichaelCard.com. Yeah, T- all the T-shirts, keychains, hats—they're <laughs> all there. Please share that first song you wrote when Bill Lane asked you to write a song. Um, what song did I say that was? I have decided. Yeah. Um, yeah, well, you know, I'm, I'm at church, this little um, black Presbyterian church, the Syrian Memorial Presbyterian Church, and, and Bill walks up. You, you do play the guitar, don't you, Mr. Card? Yes, sir, but guitars were for attracting girls in the student center. Um, and he said, oh, it was, no, the first song I wrote for him was Stranger on the Shore, because he handed me a sermon. It was John 21. First Miraculous Catch of Fish. And so, uh, yeah, Stranger on the Shore. I, don't, I, I don't, probably couldn't play it. I hadn't played that song in years. But, um, yeah, I, all of this really is kind of a result of Bill's faithfulness to me. And, and that's how it works, isn't it? Right? We, we sow into each other's lives. And, and, uh, and yeah. Yeah, and then um, I, t- I got it wrong. I, you know, I, I told you that he told me that... Uh, he was going to teach me how to read the Bible. What he said was, I thought about this today. He said, I'm going to teach you how I read scripture. That's what he said. Yeah. So um, several years ago at a concert, you mentioned spending a lot of time with a Jewish person slash mentor. Was that William Lane or someone else? Well, Bill's not, wasn't Jewish. I, I can't think who that was unless it was, uh, there was a, woman, a Jewish woman, Shirley Messenger, uh, who was uh, who? Who sort of poured into me? Uh, uh, she was uh, a Brooklyn Jew, Jewish woman who had become had that wonderful Brooklyn, you know, accent. And she lived in actually lived in Chattanooga, Tennessee, just south of where we are. And uh, and she her her famous quote was uh, uh, she was confronted by uh, or she was talking to some people with Jews for Jesus. And she goes, son, it shouldn't, it sh- it's not uh, Jews for Jesus, it's Jesus for Jews. Yeah, yeah. It's Jesus for Jews. She was, she was wonderful. Um, there's another theory about the, how, the, how a prostitute made her way into the house of the Pharisees. Maybe she knew some of them previously. Well, that's not what, that's not outside the realm of possibility, but who, you know, again, the Bible thinks you don't need to know how they got in, right? That's a detail we just don't know. Um, let's see. My daughter traveled to the area of Decapolis in a tour, and she was told that they have excavated a large number of Christian churches in the town where the demonic, demoniac was delivered. I, I'm not sure which churches she's talking about. There's a there's a ridge or, where they think Gadara was, and there is a church there that they've excavated. So there, I didn't know about churches, but I know there's a church there. Um, um, 
So yeah, there's, of course, Israel, they're excavating everywhere. Um, I'm still confused about, uh, I'm still confused, but I'm trying to understand. When Americans had slaves, they gave them nothing and wanted them to be nothing. Well, that's in general, that's true, but there was also this, this idea, and there were slaves that had professional um, ability, I mean, like blacksmiths, and they had, you know, skills that were, that were valuable to the, the person who owned them. And unfortunately, what the money that they made didn't go to them. It, you know, it, uh, it uh, was scarfed up by the slave owner. Uh, but in general, uh, you're right, in America, it was chattel slavery. Uh, so if Mark, it's not Mark, it was Luke. If Luke was a slave and his owner sent him away to be educated as a doctor, I get now that he would be worth more, correct, but to whom? Well, he's worth more to the person who owns him because he doesn't own himself. It's, and, and again, the, the money he makes, he owns. And get this, even after, a, 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 you've heard of the term freedman. Um, so if Luke had been a freedman, uh, the man who owned him still uh, had a claim on the money he made, wow. even though he'd been freed. Yeah, so freedman doesn't mean a free man. There's still a, a, a relationship, a usurious relationship there. Um, uh, yeah, I, I told you, I, I wrote a book called A Better Freedom that looks at first century slavery, and, and uh, it was, yeah, it was interesting. Um, yeah. For all the Hesed, David received and understood, acknowledges God's kindness and we are to be like David, well, not in everything. <laughs> uh, yeah, but what sin didn't David commit, right? He's, anyway, uh, men and women after God's own heart, we should be like that, David, right? David prayed, uh, take, them, his, take them out prayers concerning his enemies. Uh, without getting political, how are we to pray for the likes of enemies like Putin? Well, if you look at some of those psalms, David would say, destroy my enemies according to your hesed. So he still brought hesed into it. It's, uh, it's, uh, and, and I think what he's doing, I, I don't know if I can totally, under, oh, totally understand what he was doing, but he, what he's doing is he's putting them in God's hands. And he trusts that, uh, I think he, he's uh, trusting God's, you know, God's hesed to uh, do what needs to be done but destroy my enemies according to your hesed. Uh, when Jesus spent long hours praying on the mountain or, or wilderness alone all night, what do you think his prayers were about or for who? His disciples, the people around him? I think it's all those things. And then somebody here had the idea that he was listening. I'd never thought of that, but probably a lot of that time is listening prayer. And uh, yeah, wouldn't you like to have, well, we do in John 17, we can listen in on his prayer. So we have an idea of what his prayers kind of were like. And, and he does, he prays to the Father, he prays for the disciples, he prays for himself. Um, um, I heard a Jews for Jesus rabbi say that he thought the language of heaven would be Hebrew. Well, all Jewish people think that. Uh, <laughs> what do you think? Um, do we need to be pr pr uh, uh, practicing our <laughs> sounds? Uh, yeah, you know, I don't, don't know, I don't know what the language of heaven is. I don't, I don't know, but uh, I hope it's not Hebrew because, you know, all I can say is manishma, which means how are you. And I, and I know two things. I know manishma and 
Anilo Mavin, which means I don't understand. So I say, I go, Manishma, and there's a blah, 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 this Hebrew back, and then I'll say, Anilo Mavin. I mean, I don't understand. <laughs> That's the full range of my Hebrew. Um, Michael, I believe you and John Stott that Dr. Lane's Mark Word commentary uh, is great, but is it uh, an understandable read for a guy from North Carolina? I think it, it, it is. It's not. Bill would never do that. He would never, you know, kind of put it outside of people's reach. So I, I think it is. I don't think it's highly technical. Um, I tried to read a book the other day by somebody, and it was virtually unreadable. What was that? I don't know. I can't remember. I probably shouldn't say who it was, even if I could remember it. But, um, um, yeah. No, it's, it's very accessible. It's very accessible. Um, was Jesus born in a shed or a cave or the lower level of jo- Joseph's relative's house when he was uh, found at around age two. I don't get that part. Hmm? Oh, right, okay. Well, if you go to Israel, you can go up to, up to Ephraim and they have an a, a old house there. It's, the, it's a replica. And, and what, what you have is, and I, I have a picture of it. I, should, uh, should have, I can show you a picture of it. And when you see the houses, it makes perfect sense. But you have to kind of see it. So what you have is a, you've, got the big, you've got a stone house, okay? And there's a wall about a third of the way back. And behind that wall is the cataluma, the guest room. You know, the, the room in your house where you store the Britannicas and the boxes with excess stuff? That's, the, that's your cataluma. And when someone comes to stay at your house, you clean that all out and put a bed in there. That's exactly what it was. Okay, so when Joseph and Mary come there, there's no room. Now, it was falsely translated in. It's not an inn. It's a guest room. So there's no room in the guest room. So they have to stay in the, uh, the area underneath the house. These houses are built over a cave, over caves. And if I, I'll, if I can remember, I'll bring the picture and I'll show you tomorrow. It, when you see it, it makes perfect sense. And uh, so you go down like three or four steps, and then there's up against the hillside or down, kind of down in the ground, there's a cave. So, uh, but it's, it's not a cave like we, we know caves here. It's, a, it's a, I don't know how, the, the limestone just leaches out, and they build their house over it, and you store stuff, and the animals, it, it is, a, it is a, a barn because the animals stay down there. Um, yeah, you ha- kind of have to see it before it makes sense. Um, at the end of your section on how Jesus responds to confusion over identity, you gave four statements that were awesome. Thank you. But too quickly uh, for me to write down. Can you give those again? Okay. Let's see if I can find those real quick. Jesus. Oh, what was it? Um, his confusion. Okay. But over his identity. Okay. Jesus in hiding. Misunderstood identity. Okay, here, this, I think this is it. Um, yeah. No. Now see, Bill would just know it. He would just have it right there at his fingertips. So I'm no Bill Lane. Painfully obvious. I'm a Mike Card. I'm not putting myself down. I have been well rebuked since I've been here to not do that to myself. Um, You know, whoever asked me, come back later and I'll I'll dig that out for you. I'll find it for you. 
Uh, okay. So, because it'll take me too long to find it. I was going to play some songs for you. This is a, a I, I don't write songs about um, my experience and this happened to me. And I'm, Bob Bennett sees a penny on the sidewalk and picks it up and writes a song about it. And it's, and it's a great song, you know. I don't do that. That's not, my, that's not my deal. I read lots of boring books about a top, biblical topic and then write a kind of a boring song about the, whatever it is. Uh, but no, that was self-deprecating. I'm not supposed to do that, okay? I write these great songs after I read boring stuff. Anyway, this is a... This is a song that, that did come from an experience, and uh, I have to, I'll talk about the experience, and I'll play the song. Um, I, was, uh, I am a part of uh, um, uh, a group of individuals in Franklin, the Empty Hands Fellowship, uh, which um, is a racial reconciliation group. And year, this is years ago, 25 years ago. Um, we've been at it for a long time. Um, one of the things we started doing was we were meeting together for prayer, but we started visiting each other's churches. And um, so I visited First Missionary Baptist, Denny Denson's church. Denny was the head of our group. And um, so I visited the church. And uh, so I walk in there, uh, old church built by slaves after the Civil War, um, beautiful old church. And um, a little old lady walked up to me very innocently and very kindly said, uh, why are you here? I was, the only, I was the only white person there. Why are you here? I said, well, I'm Denny's friend. And she goes, well, that's okay. You know, come on in. You know, no, no problem, no problem. So um, I'm, I'm waiting for the service to start. Um, and there's only one empty seat, and it's in the back. And it's next to this very big woman. Tall, big, just big. And uh, I didn't know this, but she was the wife of one of the empty hands guys. His name was Bob. Uh, Bob Smith. Bob... Um, bag groceries at, at Kroger's. Um, he, he was like independently wealthy. He'd retired from a, a very lucrative job, but he had, uh, they, to, together they had raised 75 foster children, 75 foster children. Bob said when he came home, he never knew if there was going to be someone else at the table. And when you, when you asked Dinah, why in the world did you do this? Dinah said, well, if I don't love him, who else is going to? That was her whole kind of theology, right? If I don't love him, who else is going to? So Bob, at about 75 years old, is bagging groceries at Kroger's to give the money to one of their foster children who needed help. So that's this remarkable couple. But I didn't know she was Bob's wife at this point. So anyway, I knew Bob. I didn't know her. So I sat down next to her. Her name's Dinah. I sat next to her, and she greeted me, and, you know, and we're waiting for the service to start. So the service starts, and they do stuff in their church that we didn't do in our church. Uh, one of the things they had was uh, the deacon devotion. And it was Denny's idea. He said, it's a way to keep the deacons in the word. They didn't know on any Sunday morning they could be called upon to give a devotion. So they were always ready. And you think that's a pretty good, that's a pretty cool idea. So uh, Mr. Stone gave the devotion that morning and he and I were, we become friends. He worked at the lumber yard and uh, we were building a house. So I, I saw Mr. Stone almost every day. So we were friends. And uh, so he, gets, he starts giving his devotion, and I'm sitting there, and Dinah grabs my hand, which completely freaked me out, okay? Very, you know, she's just this wonderful gravitational, she had this love, she was a gravitational field of love, and she drew people into her. So she grabs my hand, but I freak out, and then I sort of calm down, and I think, well, this is just what black people do in their churches, right? And I look around, 
and no one else is holding hands. So, so that was wrong. <laughs> and um, she held my hand through the whole sermon and he would make a point and she would squeeze it. And, uh, and, it, and we were done. You know, she said, thank you for coming. You know, you're, you're very welcome uh, to be here. And, uh, and I can't tell you what that did for me, what that moment did for me. It was like I was, she had 75 foster children. I became 76. I felt adopted by her. I don't know if you've ever known someone with that kind of love. You know, uh, there, you don't often meet people like that. You meet nice people and loving people. I get that. But this is a whole other thing. This is a whole other universe. And, um, and so I wrote a song about it. Um, it's the song called When Diana Held My Hand. She was haloed round in kindness I was nervous and alone A stranger come into her world The church that was her home She'd been taught to love the stranger As only the suffering can That Sunday morning set me free When Dinah held my hand The service was about to start It was my destiny The only place beside her it was waiting there for me Without a word she reached across And gently took my hand And the path I've traveled ever since That morning it began She reached across 300 years Of suffering and pain She reached across the great divide Of the color of our skins When she reached across that empty pew I finally understood that all the hate that meant to harm the Lord would use for good. Now she was strong and she was kind, but gentle when she spoke her mind. Cause Jesus is on the main line and you can tell him what you want. By the force of her own gravity, her outrageous generosity, that morning I began to see that she'd adopted me. She reached across 300 years of suffering and pain She reached across the great divide of the color of our skins As she reached across that empty pew I finally understood That all the hate that meant to harm The Lord would use for good Now life is made of moments we don't hardly understand Sometimes the meaning isn't clear, like there's no specific plan. But each moment has been set in place before the world began. Like the time that Sunday morning when Dinah held my hand. Like the time that Sunday morning when Dinah held my hand. Amen. What? Has Dinah heard this song? I don't know. She died before. Yeah, she and Baba both passed away. Yeah, yeah, that was, killed me. That uh, and and her. Well, they have all these. You know, she has all these children floating around uh, Franklin. And Lasagna is one of one of her daughters that I'm, I'm really friends with. And I've been begging her for years to give me a picture. Because I, when I would do a concert, I want to put put a picture of her up so everybody could see her, and I'm still waiting for that picture uh, from Lasagna. So I need to get back on it when I get home. Find other kids. Huh? Find those other seventy-four kids. Yeah, yeah, 
Yeah, 75 foster children. Yeah. Yeah. Huh? Yeah. Yeah, she was something else. Okay, I want to look at Jesus and the angels. How at all the major sort of turning points in his life, there are angels there. At the temptation, there's angels. At Gethsemane, there's an angel. At the arrest, there's an angel. At the resurrection, there are angels. They're they're there at all the sort of important uh, points. I don't know if you've ever seen an angel, if you've ever been around one. Uh, I think I saw one one time. The first time I ever preached uh, Round Pond Presbyterian Church in Round Pond, Kentucky. I was a sophomore in college. I just changed my major from wildlife management to, um, to Bible, uh, biblical studies. And I, I got hoodooed into this little church. It ended up being the church that my wife grew up in, um, and she was there. But we weren't, you know, we weren't married then, obviously. And uh, she walked in. I'd never seen her before. First time I ever laid eyes on her. And, uh, and she's real pretty. And uh, I said, that's the girl I'm going to marry when she walked in. And uh, she sat down and looked at me. I, my beard was about this long. And she, she said I had polyester pants on and cowboy boots. I don't remember what I was wearing, but that's what she said. <laughs> and she looked at me. This is almost simultaneously. I saw her and I said, that's the, that's the one I'm going to marry. She looked at me and said, oh, God, please tell me I don't have to marry someone like that. <laughs> And that's how our romance started, right? <laughs> and what, what followed was six years of me pursuing her and getting zero, zero uh, uh, encouragement. Yeah. Okay. Um, let's talk about Jesus and the angels. <clears throat> First of all, uh, they, they predicted his birth, Gabriel, uh, he, he comes to Mary, and the uh, angel said unto her, Don't be afraid, Mary, you found favor with God. I wish we had time to talk about that word favor. That's another Hebrew word. Chen is the Hebrew word. And favor is a big, that's a big category in the Hebrew Bible. So you found favor with the Lord. You'll conceive in your womb and bring forth a son, and you shall call him, uh, his name, Jesus, Yeshua. And he'll be great and shall be called the Son of the Most High. And the Lord will give him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. His kingdom, of his kingdom, there will be no end. That's Luke one. So there, you know, at the, at, uh, the an angel predicts his birth, but uh, the angels are present as at his birth. This is also Luke, and suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of the heavenly hosts praising God and saying, "Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace among those whom He favors." So um, there's that favor business again. Um, so at the prediction of his birth and when he was born, uh, there were angels there. Then later on, uh, an angel warns Joseph uh, about Herod's plot to kill Jesus. That's Matthew 2. Uh, when Herod died, the angel of the Lord suddenly appeared in a dream to Joseph. We talked about this, how the angel can appear to Mary and just tell her things, but Joseph is the sort of person that believes a dream. So God's, the angels come to him in dreams, and he, it's, for some reason it's easy for him to... He was a dreamer, you know, like, like his namesake. 
um, comes to him in a dream and says, get up, take the child and his mother, go to the land of Israel for those uh, who are seeking his life are dead. So that's when he knows he can uh, go back. And that's Matthew 2 and then 19 and 20. Uh, when Jesus is tempted, and we're going to look at these passages in a little more detail, but I'm just going over the, the, the list. Uh, at the temptation of, of Jesus, angels uh, minister to him or try to. I'm not sure if it, I think sometimes he was beyond the comfort of an angel. Um, see what you think. Um, but that's Matthew 4. In Gethsemane, uh, the angel is there to give him strength. That's Luke 22. Angels are ready to help Jesus uh, when he was betrayed. This is Matthew 26, 53. Do you think that I cannot now appeal to my father and he will at once send me more than 12 legions of angels? That's 72,000 angels. So for every one of his disciples, he has a legion of angels. Um, and I don't think he was exaggerating. I think uh, that something like that's really, I think that's real. Um, uh, an angel is there uh, to roll the stone away from the tomb, uh, from Joseph of Arimathea's tomb. That's Matthew 28. Suddenly there was a great, great earthquake for an angel of the Lord descended from heaven, came, rolled back the stone, and, and sat on it. Uh, an angel announces the resurrection. This is number eight if you're uh, numbering them. An angel announced the resurrection of Jesus. This is Matthew 28. But the angel said to the woman, don't be afraid. <clears throat> and you'll notice that when angels appear, that's almost always the first thing they say is don't be afraid. Because apparently it's a pretty fearful thing to see an angel. Yeah. Don't, don't be afraid. Yeah, I think that's it. Um, um, uh, but the angel said, don't be afraid. I know you're looking for Jesus who was crucified. He's not here. For he's been raised, just as he said, come see the place where he was laying. That's Matthew 28. I just didn't think it was appropriate to tell that story right now. I'll tell it later. Yeah, but I've seen it. I've seen one. Actually, twice I've seen angels. Yeah. Uh, and they were normal looking people, right? Daniel, when he describes the angel, he saw, he looks like a man. Um, yeah. Yeah. Without knowing it. Yep. Yep. Yeah, you, you, there's no telling how many times we've encountered angels. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. But, um, you know, I'm con convicted of the reality of their presence. And, uh, well, I'll, I'll, I'll tell you the first one. Well, let me finish this list. Let me finish this list. And this list, by the way, I didn't do this list. Someone else did. His name is Don Stewart. I, want, I don't want to take credit for Don Stewart's work. Um, at the Ascension, did I say that? Okay, that's nine. At the Ascension... Uh, angels are present. You see how, and I'd never seen this before before I read this list. At all the major turning points, there's, there are angels there. That's pretty cool. Um, while he was going and they were gazing up toward heaven, suddenly two men in white robes stood by them. That's Acts 1. And at the second coming, the Bible says angels will be with Christ when he comes back. Matthew 24, 31 and he will send out his angels with a loud trumpet call, and they will gather his elect from the four winds from one end of heaven to the other. That was 10. Here's 11. When Christ comes again, angels will execute his judgment. This is 2 Thessalonians 
1. And to give you relief uh, to those who are afflicted as well as to us when the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven with his mighty angels. That's going to be something. Yeah, it's going to be something. I think about that in the instant of that moment where when you hear this loud sound and it kind of sounds like a trumpet and you realize this has all been true and you sort of look at whoever you're with like, this is happening, you know? I think about that a lot. Uh, 12, the angels will separate the righteous from the wicked. And this is Matthew 13. <coughs> the Son of Man will send his angels and they will uh, collect out of his kingdom all that causes sin and all evildoers. So what will be at the end of the age? The angels will come and separate the evil from the righteous. That's Matthew 13. And finally, uh, they will hear Christ acknowledging or denying. After the separation of the unrighteous from the righteous, angels uh, will hear Christ either acknowledging or denying each person. This is Luke 12. And I tell you, everyone who acknowledges me before others, the Son of Man will acknowledge before the angels of God. So there's kind of a quick overview. Uh, but I just want to look at a couple. I want to look at the temptation. I want to look at when Jesus is praying and when he's um, at the resurrection. Those, those, yeah, those are the passages I want to look at. So the first one is the, is the temptation. This is Matthew 4. And I know I said this the other day, but the, the temptation of Jesus and the baptism of Jesus, that's one. No, I'm good. Thank you. That's one story. Though you can't understand those separately. They really kind of interpret each other. He's, he's baptized and God declares his sonship and then he goes into the wilderness and Satan attacks his sonship, you know. And uh, I think that's, that's a, an important thing. There's a chapter break there. You need to know that the chapter breaks aren't in the original manuscripts. They were added in the 12th century. So uh, I'm not against numbers and chapters, but uh, sometimes they don't happen in very good places. Uh, so this is Matthew 4. Jesus was led, and that word can also be translated driven. He was driven by the Spirit into the desert uh, to be tempted by the devil. After fasting 40 days and nights, he was hungry. The tempter came to him and said, here it is, if you're the Son of God, tell these stones to become bread. And isn't it interesting that he will exercise his power for other people He'll create bread to feed the 5,000, the 4,000, 4, but he won't do it for himself. He doesn't exercise his power for himself. He only exercises, Jesus is the man for others. So turn the stones into bread, and um, Jesus responds the way you and any of us can respond. He, he quotes the Bible, uh, and not even especially interesting parts of the Bible. Deuteronomy, you know, I'm being, I'm being facetious there, forgive me. Um, man doesn't, Jesus says it's written, and these are his first words in Matthew, by the way. It is written, man does not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of God. So, strike one. Then the devil took him to the holy city and had him stand on the high point of the temple. And you saw that model of the temple. It was, you know, the, the central part where the gold kind of filigree is. That's apparently where they were. If you're the son of God, see the attack on his sonship? If you're the son of God, he said, throw yourself down, uh, for it's written, he will command his angels concerning you, and they will lift you up in their hands so that you'll not strike your foot against stone. So the devil quotes the Bible to him. He quotes Psalm 91. Jesus answered, it's also written, do not put the Lord your God to the test. He's quoting Deuteronomy again. 
You know, maybe we should read Deuteronomy. You know, if Jesus quotes it when he's in a hard place, maybe I should read Deuteronomy. I'm talking to myself. I'm not talking to you. I don't spend very much time in Deuteronomy. Again, the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their splendor. All this I will give you, he said, if you bow down and worship me. That's like the final temptation. And Jesus said to him, away, away from me, um, Satan, for it is written, uh, worship the Lord your God and serve him only. That's Deuteronomy again. Then the devil left him and angels came and attended him. And what, what must that have been like? He hasn't eaten in 40 days. He's absolutely physically exhausted and he's had this battle with Satan that he's won. But uh, what did they do? You know, they're ministering spirits, but they, they show up and... Um, um, so that's the, that's the first one. This is, uh, this is Jesus praying on the Mount of Olives. This is Luke twenty two thirty nine. Jesus went out as usual to the Mount of Olives and his uh, disciples followed him. On reaching the place, he said to them, pray so that you will not fall into temptation. Uh, he he just demonstrates this concern for them. Uh, he still doesn't ask for himself. He's asking for their protection. Okay, pray that you won't fall into temptation. So he withdrew about a stone's throw beyond them. What's that? Eyewitness detail. Um, He knelt down and prayed, Father, if you're willing, take this cup from me, yet not my will, but yours be done. And the honesty of that prayer and the honesty of the presentation of Jesus in the Gospels to me is one of the great proofs of, of uh, of of the reality of Jesus. It's basically, I know what you want me to do, and if there's any way out, I want out. I don't want to do this. Nevertheless, not what I want, but what you want. And that's the victory that won our salvation, his submission to God. It's not like he walks six inches off the ground and he's this plaster saint. He's a real human being who, you know, who struggles uh, in every way, just like we do. That's why he's our high priest. Okay? So verse 43, an angel appeared from heaven to strengthen him. Um, and that term for, uh, med- for strengthen is a medical term that Luke borrowed from Hippocrates. And being in anguish, he prayed more earnestly, and his sweat fell like drops of blood, um, uh, like falling to the ground. And when he rose from prayer and went back to his disciples, he found them asleep, exhausted from sorrow. Why are you sleeping, he asked. Get up and pray so that you won't fall into temptation. So that's uh, one other time. This is just a few moments later when he's arrested. This is Matthew 26. While he was still speaking, Judas, one of the 12, arrived. With him was a large crowd armed with swords, swords, clubs, sent from the high priests and elders of the people. Now the betrayer, Judas has acquired a nickname, and and, uh, at some point, They stop calling him by his name, and he's just called by this circumlocution, the one who betrayed him. You stop using his name. So the betrayer had arranged a signal with them. Uh, The one I kiss is the man, arrest him. Um, And I don't know if you ever bought into this theory that Judas was really trying to force Jesus' hand. He really believes in him. You know, the Jesus movies usually go with that. Judas is is a... terribly bad man, right? 
When he's sitting at the Lord's at the table of the Lord when the Lord's Supper happens, he's got the money in his pocket. I mean, when Da Vinci paints it, Judas has the bag in his hand. But before the Lord's Supper, he'd gone to the high priest and said, "What will you give me if I hand him over to you?" He's not he's not a pawn that God is using. You know, he is a he's a bad guy. In my, in, at least as I I see it, he's a bad guy. Um, so the betrayer had arranged the signal, the man I kiss uh, is, is the man, arrest him. And you've got to assume that's how he normally greeted him, right? He, you greet, greet him and give him a kiss on the cheek. Going once to, G, uh, to Jesus, Judas said, greetings, Rabbi, and kissed him. And the word is, he tenderly kissed him. Jesus replied, friend, uh, do what you came for. Then the men stepped forward, seized Jesus, and arrested him. With that, one of Jesus' companions reached for his sword, drew it out, and struck the servant of the high priest, cutting off his ears. We all knew who that was. And uh, it's my theory, he's not, uh, when Matthew, I think when Matthew writes, there's a chance, certainly when Mark writes, uh, Peter's still alive, so he's not named. You don't want to put the name of the guy who's the head of your church in your gospel as pulling a sword out and cutting someone's ear off. I think he's only named after, he, after he's died. So in, like in John, he's, you know, he's named. But that's just my theory again. Um, Put your sword back in its place, Jesus said, for all who draw the sword uh, will die by the sword. And here, and here he says, do you think I cannot call on my father and he will at once put at my disposal 12 legions of angels? And again, that's 72,000 one legion uh, for every 12 disciples. A, a legion is 6,000, so 6,000 times 12. Uh, so that's, that's the second one. And here's, here's the resurrection, and then we'll move on. This is Matthew 28. And this is, by the way, why we go to church on Sunday. After the Sabbath, uh, at dawn on the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary went to look at the tomb. There was a violent earthquake for an angel of the Lord came down from heaven and going to the tomb, rolled back the stone, big heavy stone. His appearance was like lightning and his clothes were white as snow. The guards were so afraid that they shook and became like dead men. That is, they fainted. These big burly Roman soldiers who had killed men with their bare hands they faint, huh, like, like a little 13-year-old girl, this, angel, this huge angel of lightning, they faint. They can't take it. Nothing against little 13-year-old girls, but you know what I'm saying, these big burly men are afraid of these angels. Angels are fearsome, right? They're fearsome. The, and the angel said to the woman, what's the first thing angels always say? Don't be afraid. So the angel said to the woman, don't be afraid. Uh, uh, for, uh, for I know that you're looking for Jesus who was crucified. He's not here. He's risen. Just as he said, come and see the place where he lay. Then go quickly and tell his disciple, he's been raised from the dead and is going ahead of you to Galilee. There you will see him. Now I've told you. I love that. So the women hurried away from the tomb, afraid yet filled with joy, mixed, mixed feelings, and ran to tell his disciples. Suddenly Jesus met them. Greetings, he said. They came to him, clasped his feet, and worshiped him. Then Jesus said to them, don't be afraid. 
Go and tell my brothers to go to Galilee. There they will see me. So a lot of, don't be afraid, don't be afraid. Okay, so there's uh, uh, angels in, in Jesus' life. Um, I want to look at, um, quickly again, the, the, the course of the ministry of Jesus. A lot of these passages we'd already, we're, we've already looked at, looked at so only, I only want to look at one of them. But, um, and I told you again, I'm, I want to get in my head the trajectory of his ministry, a small start, solo ministry in the synagogues, he, uh, he, healing and, and, and teaching. And then he begins to choose disciples and his popularity, you know, fairly quickly rises. And then we have, I think, a, a good part of the ministry that we have in the Gospels where there's 5,000, 10,000 people, you know, all these, the feedings and that sort of thing. And then uh, my, so far, my, my suspicion is there's a gradual erosion of his popularity. It, doesn't, it never goes back down to zero, but there's a gradual erosion of his popularity when he starts talking about eating his flesh and drinking his blood. Many of his disciples leave and say, we can't take that. I think the numbers start to sort of dip at that point. And then he makes his way to Jerusalem and, um, um, and the cross happens. So I, wanna, I just want to look at that just quickly. Uh, here, here's the rough, rough data. And uh, then I want to look at uh, just one of the passages. There's so many passages we could look, look at. So uh, the beginning of the ministry, obviously, is the bab- baptism of Jesus. The baptism, the temptation, that's the beginning. That's where, the, that's where his ministry begins. And then there's this first solo preaching gig in Galilee. And Mark 1 and Matthew 4 and Luke 4 all tell us this was a very successful. He was very successful. Everyone rejoiced and it's a big deal. Right after that, he calls the first disciples, and right after that is Cana, the first miracle. Okay, so there's this early beginning in Galilee. Then he makes his first trip to Jerusalem. That's in John two, and the the real public part of his ministry, at least in in Jerusalem, begins with the first temple expulsion. That's in John two, and that's where the conflict starts. You know, from that point on, during the whole ministry the priests and the Sadducees, the people who are the temple elite, you know, they're, they're going to be against him. And it, it began with that first, first bookend, first trip to Jerusalem. He, he, did, he tears up the temple. Um, I'm skipping. He calls uh, he, the, the rest of his disciples. There's early, more early success in that ministry. But still early in the ministry in Mark 3, uh, the first plot to kill Jesus I mean, they've decided very early, we're going to have to kill this guy. We have no choice but to kill him. Um, the crowds keep growing. Uh, Mark 3, 9 is where he says, have a boat ready so they don't push me into the lake. I love that. And um, at that point, he makes his second trip to Jerusalem, and that's John 5. If it wasn't for John, we would think that Jesus only made one trip to Jerusalem during his ministry. But John lets us know he was there three times. Okay. Thank you, John. Why? Because John knows you don't know. 92% of John is unique. He knows that you know the content of Matthew, Mark, and Luke, and so he's going to tell you what they didn't tell you, and that's part of what they didn't tell you. Um, So the second trip to Jerusalem, that's John 5, and it's not until then that he appoints the 12. That's Mark 3 and uh, Luke 6. The crowds are still growing. In fact, they grow so large at that point that he can't eat. That's Mark 3.20. That's when his mother and brothers decide that he's out of his mind because he's not eating anymore. So the beginning, early success, trip to Jerusalem, 
ministry happens, successful, early success, second trip to Jerusalem, and now we start to have um, crowds so large that he can't eat. So large that he has to retreat to the wilderness. Um, there's a passage in Mark 5 that I love. Uh, the crowds are pressing in on Jesus, and uh, um, Jesus at, one point, at that point says, who touched me? And they say, what do you mean who touched you? Everyone's touching you. You know, that's the woman touching his, his coat, or the tassel. Uh, he will still occasionally teach in the synagogue on the Sabbath. That's Mark 6 during this second, second point. Um, and at this point, he sends the 12 out. This is Mark 6, Matthew 10, and Luke 9. He sends the 12 out on their first mission, two by two. We saw that yesterday, didn't we? And it's also at this point that he feeds the 5,000 because they're the huge crowd. But that, after that is when the turning point happens. And that's uh, John 6, or yeah, John 6 and 7, sorry, John 7, when he starts talking about eating his flesh and drinking his blood. Uh, then the popularity begins to erode. At that point, an investigative committee from Jerusalem shows up, more pressure. And that, at that point, he travels all the way up to Tyre, 25 miles north. Um, so he's kind of getting out away from the heat, I think, Tyre. And then he goes over to the, 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 the capitalists, the, those 10 pagan cities. So the pressure happens. He goes up to Tyre, and then he goes back around, and then down to the Decapolis. Uh, and that's when uh, his third trip after that, his third trip to Jerusalem happens. And that's John 7. Then he feeds the 4,000. Um, they go back up to Caesarea Philippi for that uh, Peter's confession. And, um, and that's the first time he tells the 12 that he's going to supper. That's Mark 8 and Matthew 16. He begins to tell them he must suffer many things. And then the, the, the turning point, I call it the point of no return, Luke 9, 51 Jesus resolutely sets his face for Jerusalem. This is the final trip to Jerusalem. The third, uh, the third and final. Did I say it's the third or fourth? Fourth, fourth and final trip to Jerusalem. Large crowds are traveling with him, but as I said before, they're not all necessarily his people. They're just people going to Jerusalem for, for Passover. Certainly there's a crowd of his followers around him. They stop by Capernaum on the way, and that's where the temple tax is uh, collected in Matthew 17. And there's no crowd there. There's just Jesus and Peter. There's no mention of a crowd anyway. Um, and there's not a, a mention of a crowd until Matthew 20, and they're in Jericho. So I'm not saying everyone disappears, but I'm just saying that it seems to me like it's wane, his popularity is waning. There's not this mass of people. So he gets to the area outside of Jerusalem, Bethany, and he raises Lazarus. That's the last healing and the final stop. He enters Jerusalem, Mark 11, Matthew 21, uh, Luke 19, and John 12. I'll say that one more time. Oh, she's gone. <laughs> Write this down for her, would you? Okay. Uh, Mark 11, Matthew 21, Luke 19, and John 12. And is it a, a third to a half of the Gospels are the last week of Jesus' life? That's Passion Week. Okay. Half of John, I think, is the last week. 
That's when we have the, temp, the second temple expulsion. He gets back to Jerusalem and uh, tears up the temple for a second time. And that's when we hear in Mark 11 and Matthew 26 of the final plot. We're going to have to kill him. He's left us no choice but to kill him. Um, he's anointed at Bethany, goes back to Bethany. That's where I got confused earlier. And the Last Supper happens, and the foot washing happens, and Gethsemane and all those things happen. He's arrested, crucified, resurrected, and goes back to Galilee. It starts all over again. The ministry starts all over again. Yeah. So uh, we have time for one more passage. Let me look at this. And this is one of my favorite passages, and that's why I've saved it for, uh, for the end. Um, this is John 7. Um, I'll start in verse 33. Jesus said, I'm with you for only a short time and then I'm going to the one who sent me. You know, it's John because he's calling God the one who sent him. You will look for me, but you will not find me and where I am, you cannot come. Um, The Jews said to one another, where does this man intend to go that we cannot find him? Will he go where our people live scattered among the Greeks? That's the diaspora, like Egypt and, and outside of Israel. And teach the Greek, what did he mean when he said, you'll look for me, but you will not find me, and where I am, you cannot come. Jesus just says something deeply spiritual, and the next verse indicates they have no idea what he's talking about. That's got to be John. And this is what, this is the moment that uh, kind of I've been waiting for. Uh, This is the verse that made me want to be a Bible, study the Bible. On the last and greatest day of the feast, verse 37, stop right there. Um... If you, haven't, if you haven't been listening you, uh, as you're reading chapter 7, you've forgotten that it's tabernacles. The, fe- the feast that he's there in Jerusalem for is tabernacles. And you've got to ask yourself, what happens on the last and greatest day of the feast? Because John's readers know. He doesn't have to explain it because he knows what ha- they know what happens on the last day of tabernacles. We don't know. Let me tell you what happens on the last day of the feast of tabernacles. On the last day of the feast of tabernacles, the high priest would congregate with a group on the front porch of the temple. Uh, They would make their way down the ridge to the Pool of Siloam, down through the city of David to the Pool of Siloam. And during uh, during their uh, walk, they're chanting uh, hallelujah psalms, Psalm 119, that say things like, O work thou then salvation. There, uh, when he would get to the pool, the high priest had a silver pitcher. Some accounts say it's gold. He would, he would fill the pitcher with water. They would turn around and they would process back up um, the, uh, back, back up the hills, uh, to, to back up to the temple. And by the way, Tabernacles is, is this dual celebration. There's a historical significance uh, when God provide, provided water in the wilderness. They're celebrating that. And the, and the Jews lived in tabernacles or booths. So part of it's celebrating the wilderness wanderings. And that's where, that's where this connects. So he, he goes back up to the por- front porch of the temple, huge crowd of people, and in front of the people, he holds up the pitcher and he pours the water out and he quotes Isaiah 12, 3, and this is what he shouts across the crowd, with joy, you will draw water from the wells of salvation. That's Isaiah 12, 3, okay? That's what happens on the last and greatest day of the Feast of Tabernacles. So... 
On the last and greatest day of the feast, Jesus stood and said in a loud voice, I think he's there at that I think he's there at that moment and he's shouting across the crowd. So the high priest has just said, with joy you will draw water from the wells of salvation. And Jesus shouts, if a man's thirsty, let him come to me and drink. When I heard that, I thought, okay, I want to find every one of those I can possibly find. If a man is thirsty, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as scripture has said, streams of living water will flow from within him. By this he meant the spirit whom those who believed in him were later to receive. Up to that time, the spirit had not been given since Jesus had not been glorified. On hearing his word, some of the people said, surely this man is the prophet. Deuteronomy 18, the prophet likened to Moses. Why does he sound like the prophet unto Moses? What did Moses provide in the wilderness? Water. This sounds like the prophet prophet like Moses. Uh, Still others said he's the Christ. They don't understand that the prophet who's uh, likened to Moses is also the Christ. It's the same person. Others said he's the Christ. Still others said, how can the Christ come from Galilee? Doesn't the scripture say that he'll come from David's family and from Bethlehem? Uh Uh-huh. The town where David lived, thus the people were divided because because of Jesus. Some wanted to seize him, but no one laid a hand on him. So we'll stop right there. So, um, yeah. Oh, my angel stories. Okay, we'll close with this. The very first time uh, I ever preached uh, was at Round Pond. Pre- well, that, when I saw Susan, uh, it was the same day. It's funny, I saw an angel and I saw Susan the same day. That's funny. Um, so anyway, I was, uh, it was, uh, it just strikes me. I've, I guess I've always been kind of nervous and, and that's always been a hard thing for me because I was f- totally freaked out. And... Um, I was, at that point, I could read Hebrew pretty well, and I, I did a sermon for, from Jonah, and I was, reading, I was reading in Hebrew. I was preaching from Hebrew, and, and, but stumbling along. I wasn't fluent. I'm stumbling. And he said, uh, unto thee, uh, you know, and this farm community, they don't understand that I'm translating Hebrew. They think I'm just stupid and I can't read. That's, that's what's happening, you know, during my first sermon. Okay. So it, di- it didn't go well. Let's just say it didn't go well. Susan and her parents weren't very impressed by my first sermon. But anyway, it, when, when I was really struggling the most, uh, a man came in the back door, and he had, it looked like kind of like a karate outfit, although it was, it was some kind of linen. And uh, he walked in and uh, looked kind of like a hippie and came in and he sat down and uh, stayed for not the whole sermon, but right before the end of the sermon, he, he got up and he walked out. And there are two deacons, you know, standing right there by the door. And uh, I knew he wasn't from Round Pond, Kentucky. He was, you know, he's not a farmer from the Round Pond, Kentucky. So anyway, uh, after, uh, after the sermon, I asked one of the deacons, I said, who was that guy who came in? He said, what guy? I said, that guy that had the funny, like karate suit almost, like linen. He goes, I, I didn't see any, anything. And I asked the other guy, he said, I didn't see anybody. So they didn't see him. And I realized that, I, I think anyway, that that was an angel who came in. He wasn't coming to comfort me because I, I, I didn't know who he was. But he, he was almost like checking on me or something. It was, uh, it was, it, when I realized who it was, it was this huge affirmation that um, um, I was doing what God wanted me to do, I guess. So uh, anyway, I mean, it probably, I don't tell the story very well, but it was, uh, it was, a, big, it was a big moment in my life realizing that uh, that was an angel. I'm not going to tell you the other story. It's it's. Uh, I'll tell you later. I'll tell you tomorrow.
Okay, um, can we pray? I, oh, no, you're gonna play. Yes, yes.